Carpet City Cinema, Hilo Films Podcast. I'm David Weaver. Some sad news for fans of local history, such as myself, and it does have a connection to The Last Frankenstein. Uh, one of the uh, places that was really important for me to shoot in for the movie was the uh, TP Inn, uh, which in the film is the uh, abandoned hotel and restaurant with Native American architecture designs that is the site of the uh, beating death of uh, John Ashley by the by the wonderful dynamic duo of Strzok and Winstead. And that scene was always written with that location in mind. Um, and it was kind of, you know, when we were in pre-production, I had these key uh, locations within Amsterdam, really uh, places that are really iconic to me uh, in terms of their design and in terms of nostalgic value for me and in terms of their history uh, within Amsterdam, uh, places like the Amsterdam Mall, now the Amsterdam, known as the Amsterdam Riverfront Center. And uh, the teepee was another one of those. And, you know, I, I the scenes that those... Uh, the scenes of the film that take place in those kind of locations, like they they were always constructed with the idea that we would shoot there, even though I had no idea if we would be able to. And I remember early on uh, in pre-production, Jay uh, Leonard, producer extraordinaire, just cautioned me that you know if if to start thinking of backup locations just in case uh, those those uh, were beyond our grasp, which was a very wise thing uh, uh, for him to do, and a very producerial thing, if I may add. Um, and I remember I did drive around a bit uh, throughout Montgomery and Fulton counties, uh, just kind of looking at other locations, see if there's anything that could really that really pop to mind. And you know, it's the kind of thing that you those are scenes that you know, they didn't have to be set where they were. It's not like you have to have an abandoned motel for that beating scene, or uh, it's not like the um, the scenes that take place in the mall, which would be like uh, when. Uh, Jason Frankenstein uh, kind of seals the deal with Strzok instead. It doesn't have to take place there, but it was really, really important to me, uh, visually, aesthetically, and also just because, uh, you know, I love the history of Amsterdam. And we were fortunate that a lot of, uh, several locations in the film were owned by the same entity. Uh, and so actually the mall and um, the TP and also the rock quarry we shot at were all owned by a local company called the Cranesville Block Company, a construction company. And uh, the TP in the history of the TP goes way back to the 1960s, uh, I believe it was when it was built. And it was a fully functioning restaurant. And it uh, has a main building, which is where the interiors that we shot were in the main building, which was like the dining hall. And off to the side, you can't see it in the film, was this like huge industrial, you know, kitchen. And the really cool thing about the TP, aside from, you know, it's an incredible mixture of mid-century modern architecture with all these kind of like incorporating Native American designs, like the totems that were, um, the uh, the animals were carved like totems into some of the support beams in the, uh, inside the building. And also they had like this, uh, you can't really see it in the movie too much because we don't get too close to it, but there's like an entryway roof that has, um, you know, a bunch of support pillars uh, on the front exterior of the building. And those all had like, you know, different kinds of animals carved into them in a Native American fashion. It's honestly, it's one of the most impressive pieces of architecture, not just in the city, but actually in you know, all of Montgomery County, all of Fulton Montgomery County. I mean, it's really amazing. It's very unique for this area. And the back wall of it, of the, uh, 
of the building is actually a rock, a rock cliff. There's a, cause, uh, if you see the movie, uh, in the part where, uh, John Ashley and Candace go behind the building and they're by this waterfall. And, uh, that's the part where she kisses him. Um, uh, that, that rock cliff face there that the waterfall's coming down that extends around the back of the building and is actually the back wall of the building is the rock face, which is really wild that they incorporated that. And, you know, it was, a, it was a popular place for a while, but by the like late nineties ish, I think is about when it started to just like go downhill. I mean, it probably went downhill before that because Amsterdam as a whole suffered a population decline in like the sixties, fifties as, you know, industrial jobs went out of the area. But, um, you know, it was, it was probably by like something around like 2000 ish, I think when it closed up, I know, I remember there was like a brief attempt to get it re going again. It didn't last very long, but basically like by like the early 2000s, I think it, it had its last gasp and it's just been sitting abandoned for like, you know, 25 years, pretty much. Um, to the side of the banquet hall, there were two buildings, uh, full of rooms that you could, you know, uh, hotel rooms. And, uh, I went up there one time about, um, probably about maybe within 10 years after it had totally shut down and you could kind of like sneak onto the property and, uh, you know, uh, you know, just kind of scope it out, see what was there. And I was just curious because I, you know, had, it was just to see what, what state it was in. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was, all the buildings were still standing there. Um, but you know, as, as expected, a pretty trash place. Um, it's kind of on the interesting to where it's located within Amsterdam because it's on our east it's on our east end, which is where a main highway comes into Amsterdam from larger cities um, east of us, like Schenectady. And so a lot of traffic actually drives by that hotel. But the thing is, the hotel is situated up and behind a bluff, behind a private drive. So you can't really see the hotel. You're, a lot of traffic goes right by it and doesn't even know it's there, which also wasn't really ideal for its future. And in addition to that, the eastern end of Amsterdam has suffered uh, really badly from urban blight. So a lot of things worked against its success. But yeah, I stuck up there and looked around uh, before the cops came, of course. Uh, fortunately, they were very understanding. I just thought, I was like, yeah, I just, you know, wanted to check out the place, see, see what was up. Uh, you know, lover of local history. Uh, not there to steal things as most of the, or to uh, ransack as most of the people who uh, came there were there to do the use, the use of Amsterdam. But by the time we uh, filmed the movie, so you, fla you know, flash forward about, you know, seven, eight years, uh, one of those buildings had been knocked down, had had been demolished. So now there was just the main place that we filmed inside. And then there was one of the hotel buildings to the side of it, which actually um, uh, the company that owned the property had hired someone to just uh, basically be a, you know, a living caretaker. He had renovated or someone had renovated parts of that uh, one hotel building into a really nice apartment, actually. Uh, and uh, the guy who was there, his name was Brian. He's a really cool guy. He was always uh, happy to be on set with us when we were filming. Um, but yeah, the, that's kind of the state of it then. They just needed someone to kind of be on the property to make sure people weren't breaking in and stuff like that. Now, at the front of the property, though, um, there were these. There was a sign that said "Teepee." It was, it was at the very front, um, past the parking lot, past the, the drive. It was the. It's really the only part of the the complex that you could see from the road. And it was the words "Teepee," each spelled out individual letters, and the letters were constructed from railroad ties, and stood about like I don't know, probably like at least six feet tall, and it stood on this little rise above the roads. 
uh, which over years had been, you know, had trees overgrown it. So unless you really knew it was there, you you probably wouldn't be aware of it. But me being a lover of this building, every time I drive in and out of Amsterdam, I'm always looking up there and be like, oh, man, the TP. <laughs> and I, in fact, let's see, I think it was Monday. Yeah, Monday I was talking to my girlfriend, and I was mentioning to her, oh, it'd be cool to get the, that sign and, uh, you know, before this place totally goes into decay, if there's one thing I could get from it, it would be that, that sign in the front. And no less than 24 hours later, I was driving by again uh, on my way back from the good old post office, and the sign was gone. And um, had to do a lot of sleuthing to find out, because it was really important to me. This was an urgent matter. And I, um, I went over to the company that owned the property and found out that they actually had sold it several years ago to another organization in the city. And um, then uh, with, uh, with a little more digging, I found out that uh, the sign, one of the letters to the sign had fallen over just because they were in such disrepair. And out of concern for safety that someone would get hurt, someone had uh, basically dismantled the rest of the sign. And in dismantling it, it basically just disintegrated for all intents and purposes. So the main building is still standing. Um, still boarded up as it was in the film. The other uh, uh, building of hotel rooms is also boarded up now, and there's no one living there anymore because they don't own the property. That company doesn't own the property anymore. And the the organization that does own it now, I think, is willing to sell it, but who knows what will ever happen because, uh, you know, it's just... It's a difficult location to do anything with, and it'd be difficult to reopen that place for what it was, and it'd be difficult to... Uh, take that property and do something else with it. But um, yeah, it's just sad to see though, uh, like an important part of Amsterdam's history kind of just falling into continued disarray, especially since it's such an incredible, like I said, incredible piece of architecture. Um, you know, even if you go on just eBay and just type in TP in Amsterdam, you can find you know, like these old postcards of the place, which I have some of them in my own collection, but hopefully someone will step in and save it at some point. Um, but I, I, I tend to be a little doubtful of that, but just sad to see that happen. I'm glad that we at least got uh, the building in our movie, which, uh, you know, and coincidentally, we got the mall in, mall in our movie, and that's also kind of coming on some hard times. The uh, parking garage in the mall, which is where uh, Strzok and Winstead and uh, Jason, they finished their meet and greet and secure the deal to have people killed for drugs. Um, and then uh, Straco instead walk away in this parking garage. Uh, that's that's gone now. That was uh, had to be demolished because it was condemned. Uh, the rest of the mall still stands. But yeah, so I guess uh, at the very least, if you don't like horror movies, if you don't like my movie, uh, it will stand as a testament to an Amsterdam that once was. But moving on to other news in film, there was a really interesting article that uh, popped up the other day uh, regarding Tyler Perry, who is uh, not someone whose work I'm really to be blunt, interested in, but I do have a lot of respect for Tyler Perry as a businessman slash artist. I think that he you know, he kind of has the same model going as people like Roger Corman did, um, where basically he's created this own mini studio empire unto himself um, because, you know, everyone knows him for the Medea films and he... I mean, those just alone, there's just a ridiculous amount of those that he's directing, he's writing and starring in, but he also has all these different TV shows going, multiple TV shows. He has a deal with Netflix now. And we're talking like, you know, his shows, hundreds and hundreds of episodes of these shows. And, it's not, you know, obviously you have someone like Dick Wolf who also has 
you know, tons of tons of hit series in production. Dick Wolf is the guy behind the Law and Order franchise, and now he has the Chicago franchise and the FBI franchise. But the thing about like Tyler Perry is that he's also like actively directing and writing a, a huge amount of this stuff. Like that was the one show I was looking about on IMDb, and he had directed over 130 episodes. And he, on top of all his stuff that he's doing for his own production uh, outfit, he, he'll also pop up here and there in movies like Gone Girl or Don't Look Up or you know, what have you. So the fact that he's, you know, and he's built this studio space down in, um, down in Atlanta, I believe it is. Um, so yeah, I mean, just, I think that even though, again, even though I'm not like into his particular brand of entertainment, um, I do, I do have a lot of respect for, uh, the fact that he was able to rise up and build this huge, like mini, mini Hollywood. And, uh, the article was in Hollywood reporter about how basically he's been planning for like four years to make this make a major expansion of his studio 800 million dollar investment in the atlanta area and he just pulled the plug on it basically and he did that because um he was able to have a demonstration see a demonstration made of uh the open ai uh text to model text to video model um platform known as sora s-o-r-a and you know, as as pretty much self-explanatory, you you basically can give this um, give this platform you know, written written text descriptions commands, and it can create uh, a video, uh, incredibly detailed video uh, based off those written commands. So, for example, if you go over to the OpenAI website and you look at, they have um, not the same kind of models that. Tarpera was able to see, but they do have some uh, brief video snippets of what they've been able to do. There's footage, for example, of like a woman walking down a street um, at nighttime in a big city, which that was, you know, it, was so, it, was, it looked a little wonky, a little CGI-ish. But the one that really uh, impressed is they have this footage of uh, a California gold rush town. And so it's like an aerial shot, almost like it was shot by a drone. It's flying over this like gold rush town. And there's all these people on the streets and wagons and horses and all kinds of stuff. And it looks pretty impressive. Um, and there are some bugs with this, uh, with this program that they're working out. And like it has a very limited uh, capacity right now in, how, in terms of like how much video it can generate, running time of video it can generate. Um, and there are some other obstacles, but I mean, the fact that this wasn't even in existence that terribly long ago, I don't think it's going to be too, too much further ahead before they figured out these bugs. And Perry's whole concern was, you know, what's, what's the future going to be? You know, are we really going to need to have actual laborers and craftsmen, you know, build period sets, build fake towns? Um, you know, he talked about how he had already saved so much time on one of his recent productions uh, by using AI to create his makeup instead of him having to sit in a chair for hours. And so the idea was that like he's seeing the future of where this is going to go and the potential that it could really remove the necessity for so much uh, labor in the field. You know, um, you wouldn't necessarily have to travel to another country. You could just, you know, use this AI, AI to basically green screen your actors into it. Um, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't necessarily need to actually build as much in terms of sets of like, you know, science fiction locations, like a f another planet or a spaceship. Uh, I mean, there's just so much, even like, even stunt work. I mean, it, you know, there's probably a lot, of, it'll eventually be able to do stunt work to save, um, you know, on the dangers or the complexities of having people do it. Um, 
it's just it's the fact that Perry is taking it so seriously that he's putting his whole investment on hold and just the, the degree to which we've seen AI already uh, move forward in just the last few years. It just, I don't know. It's just something to really kind of think about in terms of the future of the industry. Um, you know, it's, it's not how I would ever want to make a movie. Not that, you know, I'm, I'm working on a really low micro budget, so I don't think it's something I ever need to worry about either. <laughs> you know, I don't think I'm ever going to have to find myself in a position where I'm like, ah, are we going to, we going to, uh, get someone to, you know, latex up a Frankenstein monster, or are we going to, you know, you know, get sort, you know, open AI on the phone? You know, I don't think that's ever going to be a problem I'm going to have to worry about. But at the same time, if, if I was in that position, I'd still want to have something textile. I'd want to have like, you know, as much as possible be hands-on. I'm not really into that whole idea of like, let's just, you know, CGI or now what's replacing CGI in a sense, although it's kind of the same concept, AI, everything. Um, you know, I look at the industry now and I I see, you know, the really heavy, the heavyweights like Christopher Nolan, Martin Scorsese, Quentin Tarantino, um, David Fincher, you know, guys like that, I can imagine are never going to want to make a film like this using these kind of means, I would think, because they tend to be people who like, you know, we want to shoot on film, we want to have the real thing. But then as I say that, you know, and those those people have a lot of influence, you know, even, you know, even like Tarantino has got one, only has one film left. Still the point, the point is those people have a lot of influence on not just, um, what they get away with in their own films, but also kind of guiding the direction of the industry. Um, but the flip side of that is that right now there's a whole new generation of people growing up who, to them, this is just going to be the norm. You know, they're, I mean, think about people who are going to, maybe they're like 10 years old now or five years old, and, and you know, they're going to be filmmakers in, you know, 15, 20 years. They're going to grow up where AI is the norm, just like, the generation that grew up where CGI was the norm and they couldn't even relate to the whole, you know, concept of, um, you know, using models or, uh, you know, in science, you know, like look at the difference just between the original Star Wars trilogy, which was 77 to 83, and then the prequel trilogy, 99 to 2005. And so you have a 16 year gap between the last entry in the first trilogy and the first entry in the next trilogy. And the prequel trilogy was just so much CGI. And that's just how people think at that point in the 90s, you know, especially in the post Jurassic Park era. So it's the same thing's going to happen with AI, I th I'm sure, where it's just not even going to be like, for so many filmmakers, they're not even going to think in terms of, well, do I want to do this with AI or do I really want to do this practical effects? Uh, do I really want to go on location to this, you know, to the Sudan or do I just want to use AI to generate a Sudan environment? Um, I think they're just going to think in terms of like, oh, yeah, we, of course we do it with AI. And then you have the, the studios, the major studios, the big ones, Paramount and Sony and all them, who... You know, at the end of the day, they're publicly traded companies. They're worried about their investors' bottom line, and if it saves them a ton of money to just use AI instead of sending a crew over to another country or to, you know, build a uh, fantastical set, they're just going to go there as cheapest. And I guess if the, at the end of the day, if the end product, if they can get to the point where it's convincing, should I be bothered by it? I don't know, but it's definitely not how I would want to. Like I said, it's not how I would want to make a film. It would take a lot of the fun out of the process for me. Um, and I guess it's just, this is a lot of ruminations on my part. It's not like I have some great prophetic um, uh, insights. I do think, though, that it is going to take a, a hit on the uh, industry, a huge hit. Uh, going to take out a lot of jobs. Um, and some of that's inevitable because, you know, that's just the way it is with technology in general. Um, you know, a lot of, 
a lot of horse breeders uh, went out of business, I'm sure, when the automobile was invented. It's just kind of is what it is to a degree. Um, hope, hopefully they will, uh, there'll still be a place, though, for the hands-on artists and the practical artists. Um, hopefully that craft won't be lost. I'm sure it won't, but it's... And the thing, too, of course, is, like I said, you know, the really micro-budgeted people... I think it's going to be a lot further out of the reach to use something like this uh, for at least a longer period of time. And then, of course, you're going to have people who are making just contemporary set rom-coms, dramas, indie films. I'm just going to be a lot of films that will have no need for this, um, this kind of uh, developments, because it really wouldn't, it would serve no purpose. And there are some positions on film that just you really can't, really replace with AI. I mean, you could, I mean, you can replace anything, I guess, if you want to, but at the end of the day, you really can't replace full-blown, you know, performances, lead performers, director who has a vision, things of that sort. But it is, I think, important to really think ahead about where this is going to land in the film industry. Of course, there's a lot of talk now about what the future of AI, because it seems to be advancing quicker than any kind of regulation or awareness of it. Um, you hear that a lot in governmental contexts, but I really think it's important for the film industry to kind of get on top of this. Um, yeah, so that's that's my cheery news about the uh, the death of cinema as you know it. Um, new releases. New releases. Uh, nothing specific, but there was a really interesting comment over at Film Masters, the great Film Masters. We talked them up a lot because they do such amazing work, and they had a post about their upcoming Blu-ray of Bert I. Gordon's wonderful horror movie Tormented from 1960, which uh, many people may know that from having been riffed on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Excuse me while I take a drink of water. I could pause it, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to take a quick drink of water. Mmm. That was good. Um, so someone basically commented on this Facebook post. Uh, hey, I hope you really... I hope you'll eventually be able to do King Dinosaur, which King Dinosaur was Bert, the first movie Bert I. Gordon directed. Science fiction movie, people, astronauts go to another planet. Planet has dinosaurs played by uh, regular-sized reptiles. Classic Burt I. Gordon move. And uh, there's kind of like a little back and forth between this person commenting and the Film Masters Facebook page. And it basically came out that Film Masters is going to do uh, King Dinosaur. And that it's they're licensing it from the owner, uh, Kit Parker, and there might be some more Kit Parker titles coming out. So what does that mean, Kit Parker? Who's Kit Parker? Kit Parker is a guy who basically started buying up copyrights and film elements for a bunch of cult classic films, and not just genre films, actually. He, he also acquired a lot of like critically acclaimed movies and all, you know all kinds of stuff. But for the purpose of this discussion, we're talking about his cult classic movies, sci-fi, horror, B-movies. And uh, for he has a company called Kit Parker Films, um, and he was for a while releasing these licensing these movies to VCI Entertainment to put out on DVD. And so this is like back in the beginning of the DVD era, all the way up to like just a few years ago. Then he kind of went off on his own. He uh, started a label. I think it was called the Sprocket Vault. He did a couple Blu-rays, uh, I think. He did some more DVDs, but then it seemed like everything was just coming to a halt. And then, like all the stuff that he had put out through VCI was now going out of print because he wasn't going through them anymore. And it just like seemed like maybe he, uh, you know, just wasn't going to really be doing anything too active with his library anymore. Um, but 
and then the other concern I had was even if he did do something active with it, you know, he's kind of one of these guys who like I have a lot of respect for him. Uh, you know, I listened to a really there's a really in-depth interview with him on YouTube. Uh, this guy named Joshua Murphy uh, on YouTube who's got these really great, really long, in-depth profiles, interviews with uh, different people in the uh, boutique industry. Uh, some of them are like three parts long, like hours long interviews. They're really great. But the thing about uh, Kit Parker is that, you know, some of the people who kind of of his generation don't always see the importance of uh, proper transfers on Blu-ray. Um you know, when the more you uh, properly restore a film, the more detail you see in the film, the more film grain you see, the more, uh, you know, maybe imperfections in like makeup or special effects you see. But, and what happens is you have some people who their mind, either because they haven't seen it in so long or they haven't seen this movie since, you know, they were a kid in the theaters or they last saw it on a 1980s CRT TV or on a VHS tape. They kind of had this idea that like, oh, it's it's worse to have these high def transfers. It's kind of worse to have the stuff look so good on Blu-ray because then you're seeing things that are you don't want to see that they didn't want you to see. You're seeing imperfections and and you're seeing film grain and that that looks distracting. And and it's actually inaccurate because the reality is that you know when you see a movie in a film theater, you're seeing a lot of detail even back in the film projected days. And you're a lot of that a lot of those uh, you know imperfections. Uh, and those problems you're seeing uh, now in high definition, they were there back then too. You you just, you know, it's just a different time. You were seeing, watching those movies through the lens of like the 1980s or 70s where you weren't expecting as much from special effects where where the bar, um, the bar wasn't set as high. So you weren't paying attention to like the makeup, <laughs> the, 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 the parts of Dawn of the Dead where like the blue makeup might have cut off around the collar and you can see the flesh tones underneath the collar for a second of, of some of the zombies. Um, and But now, obviously, you know, we've advanced so much in terms of technology and you know, we have the ability to watch a movie in slow motion and then replay it on your screen in your living room. Those things kind of stand out more. And uh, Kent Parker is kind of like, you know, from his interviews, I got the impression he was kind of part of that that vibe, that that group of people who... When they when things were put out on high def, when high def transfers and restorations were done, they kind of seemed to like lament the fact that this, so there was more detail, even though that is what you want. And and same thing with like the film grain looks. Uh, you know, that's always been a problem too over at VCI, which is the company that he partnered with. Uh, often it's like VCI. You know, I love VCI. I love the work they do. They put out a lot of great stuff. I have a lot of props for them, but they also you know don't have the highest reputation in terms of like their Blu-ray releases. They tend to. Uh, you know, do a lot of things digitally to make the films, to remove the look of film grain from their product, which is not what you want to do. You want to see the film grain. You want to see that that is what the film looks like. It is what the physical film the movie shot on look like. And to remove that tends to give what looks like a waxy appearance where there's like no detail to anything and everything looks smooth and waxy. And Kip, Kip Parker was kind of seemed to be of that same mindset too. So I was always kind of concerned that if he did kind of start putting more stuff out on Blu-ray, that it would just kind of like not really be representative of the material. So the fact that um, Film Masters is at least going to do King Dinosaur, it sounds like they're going to do more stuff with him, is really encouraging. Uh, you know, their work up to now has been uh, really good. Uh, and the work that they had done previously at the Film Detective label was really good. So uh, fingers crossed that this just really bodes well for his titles because he's got lots of good stuff uh he's you know jerry warren is one of my favorite uh, i think i actually just mentioned this like 
last week that Trey Warren, and Trey Warren was a low-budget filmmaker, science fiction, horror, cult movies in the 50s and 60s, and he's one of my favorites. Um, he's kind of best known for basically taking foreign films and then cutting tons of footage out of them, shooting lots of new footage with different actors, and then creating this whole new entity out of it. Uh, movies like Creature of the Walking Dead and Invasion of the Animal People. He also shot some original projects too, like his Yeti film, Man Beast. Um, and Kit Parker has most of his films. He owns most of Jerry Warren's movies. Uh, he also owns stuff like uh, Monster from the Ocean Floor, which was the first movie Roger Corman uh, really hands-on produced. Uh, he owns, I believe he owns The Slime People and The Crawling Hand. The Crawling Hand is in, both of which were also uh, riffed by Mystery Science Theater. So yeah, a lot of just, and just a bunch of other stuff too. So just really hoping this all pans out uh, really well. All right, we got to pay our respects to two people who passed away since last episode. First up is actor Charles Deerkop, age 87, who's a very recognizable uh, character actor. If you just Google his image, uh, he's known for that uh, memorable flat, broken nose that he had. But uh, his probably best-known roles, he was um, one of the four stars of the uh, hit 70s TV show Police Woman, where Angie Dickinson played uh, you know, the cop Pepper Anderson. And... Uh, until his passing, actually, um, Police Woman was the oldest show, the oldest TV show whose main cast still were with us. You know, Angie Dickinson, Earl Holloman, and uh, Ed Bernard, who played Styles in the show, and Charles Deerkop were all, they were the four main people in that show and all were still with us. But Deerkop did pass away. Um, he's also known for his roles uh, in the Paul Newman, Robert Redford films, uh, Butch Casting the Sundance Kid and The Sting. Uh, in The Sting, he's like Robert Shaw's, uh, you know, right hand man bodyguard. And in uh, Butch Cassidy, he's part of the Hole in the Wall gang. Um, and of course, both those films were directed by George Roy Hill. Uh, horror fans know him, though, for um, Silent Night, Deadly Night, the classic killer Santa movie, where he plays the evil Santa at the beginning of the movie who's you know going on a little bit of a crime spree, and that's what triggers all the events that lead to the, the rest of that horror franchise. And uh, also as a messiah of evil, you know, uh, uh, a beloved cult classic, uh, which has gotten a lot more appreciation the last few years. It was a early effort from uh, the husband and wife team of Woodland Hike and Gloria Katz, who uh, later went on with... Uh, co-write uh, American Graffiti with George Lucas and they did a lot of uncredited writing on Star Wars they wrote Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom but Deer Cop has a really key part in that film um, as a uh, as a uh, gas station attendant who um, has an unfortunate uh, demise uh, but yeah showed up a lot of other great stuff too uh, he was in The Pod Broker he was in Roger Corman's uh, The St. Valentine's Day Massacre uh, he was in um, Robert Downey Sr.'s film Pound. So really great legacy he left behind, age 87. And then the other person who passed away um, was Jackie Lowry. She was uh, 93 years old, the first Miss USA ever. And, you know, like a lot of uh, successful models and beauty contestants, was able to uh, parlay that into a little bit of a, a career on film and television. She uh, was... Uh, had a small part in the science fiction classic Evan Costello Go to Mars. Can't go wrong with that. Um, but no, she uh, starred on the TV series Judge Roy Bean, which was a, a Western show in the mid-50s uh, based on the famous historical character. And she played uh, Judge Bean's niece on that show. She was the female lead in Partners, which is uh, known, uh, has a has a historical footmark foot in cinema, footnote in cinema, as um, 
the last of the Martin and Lewis films, the Martin and Jerry Lewis films. And then in 1957, she started a film called The D.I., uh, which was directed by and starred Jack Webb of Dragnet fame, who was on a roll with a bunch of feature films. And uh, they actually ended up getting married in real life. Uh, didn't stay married, but they, uh, you know, they were for a little while there. And uh, she continued to act, uh, appeared in some kind of lower-budget films, movies like uh, The Hot Angel and 18 and Anxious, showed up in a lot of TV work, and then eventually, uh, 1969 was when she kind of left that all behind. But a tip of the hat to her, Jackie Lowry, first Miss USA ever. All right, on to the movie of the week. Really no big surprise here. 1981, The Final Conflict, a.k.a. The Omen 3, The Final Conflict, which is what the marketing eventually retitled it, even though the title of the movie stayed the same. So I really, uh, you know, we talked about the last two Omen movies. Um, you know, two weeks ago I did The Omen, and my takeaway on that was, you know, really good horror film. Loved the way it was, you know, Gregory Peck built, brought such a, a grounding to the story, which would had this great buildup of, you know, uh, yeah, really nihilistic uh, despair and mystery interwoven with each other and with horror built into it. Second film, Damien Omen 2, again, Really enjoyed it. Maybe just a notch below the first one, but again, top notch, top tier cast: William Holden, Lee Grant, Sylvia Sidney, Lance Henriksen, Robert Foxworth, and uh, embraced its kind of like horror, uh, horror punches a little bit more maybe uh, than the Omen did. Even though the Omen has, of course, the famous decapitation, but really had a lot of uh, you know, uh, hit it, knock it out of the park, go go the distance, uh, horror horror scenes in it uh, that were really effective. And so that brought us to the third film, 1981, uh, Final Conflict. And uh, just, you know, right off the top, um, it's a pretty uh, lackluster finish to the trilogy. Well, it's not really a trilogy since they kept making more movies, but it is the theatrical original trilogy. It's it's quite a come down from the previous entries. Um, but the idea of it is that now we're, it's like 20 years, set like 20 years after the last movie. So now Damien Thorne, Antichrist in Waiting, has been running Thorn Industries, the family's huge conglomerate, multi-million, if not billion-dollar uh, industrial enterprise. He's been running it for some time now with great success. But, uh, of course, unbeknownst to people, he's really just, uh, you know, waiting to come into power as the Antichrist. And, and uh, moving up the, the ladder of power, uh, early in the film, he gets uh, assigned to become the ambassador to Great Britain, which is the same position that Gregory Peck had in the first film his father had. Um, but as he's kind of ascending uh, to the uh, throne of evil, he has to contend with two, uh, two problems. First off is there's a, a group of... Uh, uh, priests, monks, what have you, led by Rosano Brazzi, the man of South Pacific. Yes, Rosano Brazzi, who have found the uh, daggers of Megiddo, the, um, the set of seven daggers which uh, can be used to kill Damien with, which can be used to destroy the Antichrist. And they have found these daggers uh, after their unfortunate fate at the end of the last film and are now... Uh, like the Magnificent Seven, the Ministerial Seven, perhaps, are uh, setting out to uh, kill Damien to uh, you know, prevent his ascension to evil, evil domination. And the other problem that Damien Thornton has to contend with is the uh, second coming of Christ. Now, here's the thing about like Protestant religious theology, which I grew up in that environment, so I know about it. Like the idea of the end times is that like there's someone is going to basically 
unite the world under one rule. That's the Antichrist. Um, and that eventually the Antichrist will be, uh, you know, destroyed by the real Christ uh, during his second coming where he comes back and he basically leads an army and destroys him uh, in the Battle of Armageddon, um, which some believe will take place in some place called Megiddo. This film kind of takes a different stance than that. That's kind of like the traditional Protestant, religious, Christian interpretation of the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, which is where all this stuff comes from. That kind of like the source, it's the source book for uh, the Omen films. Um, but the interesting thing about this film is that its idea of Christ coming back is that he's actually going to come back, be reborn into the world as an infant, uh, and then you know mature into an adult, basically a replay of what happened 2,000 years ago during the Nativity story. And so uh, uh, to foretell this event, um, there will be a repeat, a matinee performance of the Star of Bethlehem, just as it appeared over to guide the three wise men at the birth of Christ in the uh, original Christmas story. Now this same event is happening again. And so there's these astronomers. The film kind of keeps checking in on this uh, observatory where these astronomers are are noting the, uh, the second uh, 2.0 star of Bethlehem and are in communication with this group of Rosano Brazzi monks um, to let them know that, hey, you know, Christ is coming back. He's going to be born again, and this star is located here, so that means this is where Christ is, the, 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 the Christ child is going to be. So Damien Thorne, not only does he have to deal with these priests wanting to take him out, but he also has to deal with the fact that Christ is going to be born again, and, of course, that's going to be his arch enemy, so he wants that destroyed. He wants that child destroyed, yet he has no idea really who he is or where he is. And into all the mix of all this, is uh, a relationship that starts to develop between Damien and a uh, popular uh, TV news personality. Uh, Kate Reynolds, played by Lisa Harrow, an Australian actress who in real life would end up, as a result of this film, her and Sam Neill would get together for a bit and have a kid of their own. Um, the power of cinema. But yeah, so that's, that's where this film's at. And if I didn't express this opinion earlier, clear enough, Definitely the word for this movie is lackluster. It's just, it's a really good example of an entry in a franchise that just is devoid, that lacks all the positive attributes that made the prior entries so successful. It's very reminiscent of Halloween 4, which I know a lot of people like. I don't really care for it. I think that it's missing everything that made the prior Halloween movies so good, including, you know, the one without Michael Myers, Season of the Witch. I won't go off into a big Halloween tangent, but I'm just saying that's another example of that same kind of issue. So we talked about the first movie um, and how it just had this, you know, slow, inexorable buildup of mysterious dread. This movie has none of that. Um, there's absolutely no sense of uh, mystery or intrigue or even attempt to build that within this movie. Uh, and a lot of the problems with this movie begin with the script. Um, you know, the film has, uh, you know, after it gets through, like, the title montage. And I have to say, you know you're in trouble when a film has a title card that says Chicago, Illinois, in case you were concerned that the place you were seeing was Chicago, Japan, or 
Chicago, Malaysia, but no, Chicago, Illinois, full title card of that. But after it gets through the opening credit montage, uh, we basically uh, are introduced to Damian Thorne uh, again, and he's watching a promotional commercial uh, piece that's been put together by one of the employees of Thorne Industries, and he's sitting there watching it, and he's got his right-hand man with him, uh, played by Don Gordon. Um, he's uh, plays Dean, who's uh, Thorne's right-hand guy. And Don Gordon, uh, real quick, if you're not familiar with him, uh, you know, veteran character actor, was in tons of stuff back in about the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and in real life was uh, really good friends with Steve McQueen, so he and McQueen were in a bunch of films together. He was McQueen's partner in Bullet. He was uh, his fellow firefighter in the Towering Inferno. He's one of the other uh, Devil's Island inmates in uh, Papillon. And horror fans know him from The Beast Within and The Exorcist Three. Um... But Gordon's there. He's just kind of sitting with uh, Sam Neill watching this promotional piece. And you know, Sam Neill gives his critiques on it. And then he and Don Gordon go into an office. And at this point, you're just like, okay, you have there's no context. Uh, we haven't seen Damien Thorne since he was 12 years old. That's the last time we ever saw him. He was 12 years old. His, you know, uh, spoiler alert, family had, the last of the Thorne family basically had, the immediate Thorne family had been wiped out. And... Uh, we knew that there was this Robert Foxworth character who was kind of watching over him within Thorn Industries, but that's really all we knew. And so in this opening scene, uh, you know, they watch this commercial and then Sam Neill and Don Gordon go into an office and without any sense of mystery or buildup or anything, Neil just starts, you know, pulling a, it's like a Bible or the Apocrypha, one of the two off the shelf and starts talking to Don Gordon about how, you know, uh, the future of his his trajectory as the, the Antichrist. So right away, it's just like there's no uh, there's no even nuanced attempts to uh, let us know to what degree uh, Sam Neill has infiltrated the uh, the Thorn Industries, the Thorn business complex uh, with his uh, Antichrist plans. It's it's just without again just right out right out and open, right casually, like it's not a big deal. Oh, his right-hand guy in the business, Don Gordon, uh, his right-hand businessman, the guy who's like running his company. Oh, he also knows totally that this guy is the Antichrist. And they're talking about it like it's like almost like, um, like Sam Neill's pulling out, you know, quoting from the Bible. He's like, oh, there's this prophecy in the Bible and the Apocrypha. And, uh, you know, it talks about so many years that such and such a thing will happen. And that's referring to me, how long I've run, uh, you know, run Thorn Industries. And, uh, you know, it, it talks about how the beast will rise out of England. And that that's a prophecy about me, you know, hopefully becoming an ambassador to England. And it's just like they're, it's like they're having the conversation in such a nonchalant way. It comes across like they're discussing stock prices. Um, and again, it's it doesn't even attempt to, uh, you know, you're, we're, we're seeing this character, this major character, the Omen trilogy, Damien Thor, we're seeing him for the first time in three years as us, as viewers, and we're seeing him after 20 years since we last left him have passed. And there isn't even an attempt to kind of play with our our natural curiosity, play with our intrigue about, well, what's he like now? And what's, how far has his, have his, have his clutches extended? To what degree is he taken over by, you know, satanic designs? Or is he still wrestling with his conscience the way we saw him in Damien Omen 2, where he was first becoming aware of the fact that he was Antichrist and he wasn't totally uh, okay with it? He was, he was, 
you know, uh, re- feel rather desolate about it and about the fact that, you know, his cousin and f- best friend uh, wasn't going to be joining him on this, this, this journey and this quest. There was a lot of turmoil we saw in that character in that movie, even right near the end of it. And so there's all these kind of questions we have about what's happened to Damien and what's he like and, and you know, what, you know, what are Thorne industry, uh, uh, industries like now. And there isn't, like I said, there's any attempt to, uh, you know, uh, have a little foreplay, to play with us, to tease us, to, to kind of slowly bring us into what's happened in the last 20 years. It's like literally we have a scene of Damien watching a commercial <laughs> at Thorne Industries to remind us that that's his company. And then he walks into an office and just starts having a casual, uh, these are the Antichrist plans for the next week with his uh, VP. And it's just completely trashes any of the uh, narrative aesthetic that was so great about the first film, any of that kind of air of mystery or, 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 or um, curiosity that it had. And that's not the only time this film does it. It constantly does this throughout the whole movie. And the other thing too, kind of like building on that is, you know, kind of going back to what I was saying about how, you know, it's been 20 years since we've seen Damien. Uh, you know, when we last saw him at, and, and, you know, too, like I said, he was someone who was kind of going through a real inner conflict. He was like 12 years old and just becoming aware of the fact that he had this evil destiny. And, one of the good things about Damien Omen 2 was that it it didn't treat him as like the character Damien as like a two-dimensional villain. It wasn't like like in the first film he was so young, five years old, that you really didn't have to have him do anything, right? He's just an innocent looking cherubic kid, and uh he's really kind of almost like the uh the focal point which around which action happens and around which the plot develops without him really doing much other than, you know, acting up in the one scene when they drive to the church or of course, the whole part where he, you know, bumps his mom off the balcony, but that was really the nurse who was behind that. And the second film, as we get to know his character better, like I said, one of the things I said in last week's episode, it would have been really easy for them to kind of just have him be like uh, some kind of cartoonish, two-dimensional, bad kid, evil kid, just, you know, stereotypically portrayed and stereotypically brought to life by whoever was cast in his part. Instead, they showed him as, uh, you know, a teenager kind of coming into puberty and coming into this awareness of, through the interventions of other people, other acolytes of the devil, that he had this dark destiny ahead of him. And they showed him wrestling with that. And the actor did a really good job uh, uh, bringing that to life. And we kind of leave him in that spot, even though he's kind of somewhat... uh, accepted his future at the end of the movie it's not like he's totally transformed uh either it's it's not like uh we're seeing uh you know anakin skywalker go zero to 60 to darth vader it's just it's still the slow process going so now that we're jumping ahead another 20 years um first off i think that jumping ahead 20 years is probably a bit too much i think that we always saw damien as a child as an infant we saw him in his teen years and probably the next film should ideally be in like his you know early 20s or something like that because the kind of to really make his character more well-rounded and more um interesting and more dynamic you really need to see the process of him molding into whatever whatever the filmmaker's interpretation of the antichrist is and um to jump ahead 20 years it's 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 kind of like so much has happened that we're just skipping over that uh, it becomes problematic in in uh, in terms of uh, acclimating us to whoever he has become. So we see we see Sam Neill and he's like 
fully invested in the role of the Antichrist in this film as Damien Thorne. Like he's like, you know, has a secret prayer room in his house where the uh, statue of Christ crucified backwards and he's, you know, praying to Satan, all these flowery prayers that are really poorly written, no offense to the screenwriter. You know, it's very much uh, the kind of dialogue that is written um, with acting in mind instead of uh, the needs of the script. It's it's kind of written very flowery in a way that no one, not even this character, would talk. Um, but that kind of is it's kind of like written with the idea in mind that oh this would be a great monologue a great a great piece for an actor to have uh, to chew on and to bite into but it just it's just very unnatural um but yeah samuel's like totally going full-blown into this and praying to satan and going on about how how horribly boring uh you know the reign of christ has been and you know he's he's also like totally invested in avenging his father, the devil, for being cast out of heaven. It's like he's totally committed to being the Antichrist. The, uh, it, it's like he's at the total far end of the spectrum from where we last left him in the last movie. And if you're going to take the character to that place where he is like 200% Antichrist, <laughs> extra strength Antichrist, um, yeah, you can't, you can't start the film off with him already there. I mean, I guess you can if you want to, but it's just such a f- jump from where we lost last left him that uh, it, it basically kind of like puts up a wall between us and the character. Um, it makes him unrelatable. I mean, that was one of the things about Damien in the second film that, again, so interesting is that that character was a relatable person. Like, he was kind of presented as a teenager going through teen angst, uh, brought up in a family by, you know, an uncle and uh, an aunt, but they're not his real parents, and there's some resentment towards him from other members of the family, and, you know, he has kind of like this bond with his cousin because they're like similar ages. He's just kind of going through a lot of teen stuff, and it was a relatable character. And now we've gone so far ahead in time um, with Damien where he's so entrenched in this uh, mission of the Antichrist that it's like a totally different character. It never, ever seems in the final conflict like we're seeing the same character that we saw in the previous two films, uh, or at least the previous film. Like I said, the first film is kind of a pass for the character of Damien because he's just a child. So it's neither here nor there. It's nothing really needs to, doesn't really need to have any continuity from there to the second film, but definitely from the second film to the third film, it just doesn't even seem like the same character. And, you know, now, there's two things I'd say to that. First off, I get the problem of making him too young in the movie is that, you know, they're also trying to build up this concept of him rising to power in the political arena by becoming like the ambassador to Britain after having led his company for so many years. And if the film starts out with him in his early 20s, it would probably it would be improbable for him to have already achieved that, you know, Um yeah, they already make comments in the film as it is of him being like 32. I think that's the age he's supposed to be 32 and already getting the ambassadorship to England and how he's really young. So I get that. So that's, I get that. But I think that the, there's plenty of ways you can work around that. Um, you know, it'd be better to change the script and have him not, you know, find a, find a different seat of power for him to attain than the, the ambassadorship or, or find a better way to explain how he could attain that uh, in his mid twenties than to have that. Those, those are better options to deal with than to just say, all right, we're going to start this film off with him in his early thirties already. That's problem one. Problem two though, is, um, you know, the, the, it, it's cause it's kind of like this, um, uh, 
it's a twofold issue because the, the first issue is that they've jumped so far ahead that it makes him difficult to relate to uh, because we haven't really seen the journey he's taken. But the other other aspect of this too that is that I just think that even if they had, so say they had taken the final conflict and they had set it uh, 10 years after the events of Damien Oma 2 instead of 20. And they had done right by this character in terms of kind of showing his progression um, and showing in a nuanced, grounded way. And so you do that and you have you have this this film. I don't think that that character ever turns into the 30-something that we see Sam Neill play. In other words, if they had taken the appropriate, nuanced, grounded, steady approach in developing the character of Damien that they had taken in the second film, and if they had taken that same approach in terms of developing the character in the third film, 10 years later, so now he's in his 20s and rising to power, I don't think you'd, that character another 10 years from there would ever become the person that we see Sam Neill portray. Because Sam Neill as this, his character of Damien, aside from the fact that it, it doesn't feel like the Damien we knew from one and two by virtue of this huge time jump, it also doesn't feel like that Damien because there is nothing left of him that seems uh, human or connected to the Thorn family or connected to the events of the first film. And someone might be thinking now, well, yeah, he's not supposed to be human. He's not a thorn. You know, he's the Antichrist. But the thing about Damien is that he was always meant to have this human side to him and this human component. And that he was basically, uh, you know, in much the way that Jesus is presented as God taking on human form, that uh, you know, Damien was presented as, a, as basically like this human vessel, this human person with his own identity and personality that the devil would work through. And the character as as portrayed in The Final Conflict by Sam Neill, both in terms of how Sam Neill portrays him and how the screenplay uh, depicts him, it just seems like some kind of two-dimensional, shallow uh, caricature of what you'd think the Antichrist would be. It, it doesn't seem to have any roots in the first two films and their... And their depiction of this character and its history. It almost seems like more like an antichrist uh, as as you'd expect him to be portrayed in like a faith-based film, like a Left Behind movie. Um, you know, uh, just very classic, uh, uh, you know, uh, industrial multi-billionaire who has lots of evil smirks and smiles and glints of his eyes and has these, you know, pretentiously flowery prayers to the devil and, you know, snaps his finger and has evil committed, babies murdered, uh, you know, animals attacking people. It, it seems like the most, again, I hate, the, I want such a judgmental, but it sounds like the most lazy portrayal of the Antichrist ever. I mean, I want to see the Antichrist I want to see in this film, I want to see him as an extension of what I saw in Damien Oma 2. I want to see how, what uh, that same type, that same degree of reality brought into the psychology of the character where what happens to a character like we saw at the end of the second film where he's begun to accept the idea that he is uh, created by the devil and that he, um, 
has this uh, you know destiny ahead of him where he's going to rise to power and and you know uh, basically uh, lead the return of Satan. But also he's dealing with the fact that the uncle who raised him is dead, that uh, the aunt who raised him is dead, that his friend and cousin is dead, that he killed that person. Because in that film it shows, in the second film it shows him kind of dealing, wrestling with some of the guilt and trauma associated with those acts while at the same time continuing down darker and deeper into his path of darkness. You know, these these horrible acts which he witnesses and sometimes uh, partakes in, they uh, they do trigger an emotional response in him of, of sadness and angst, but it doesn't, it's not enough to slow his, I mean, to prevent his descent deeper into evil. And so to go from that to someone who's just basically a, a cardboard villain in the third film, which is the way it is, Damien's presented in the third film. That's a problem that's not just born out of the fact that they had this huge time gap. It's also born out of the fact that I don't feel that the the writer of this movie even understood the character. Uh, Andrew Birkin, by the way, wrote this movie. He's a, a, a you know has a decent reputation as a writer, but not in the horror genre. And he, uh, Jane Birkin's brother, by the way, just a little trivia there. But it seemed like he didn't even understand this character. It's kind of it's like what happened with um not to go off on a tangent but why not uh you know the star wars the sequel trilogy and there's a lot of uh consternation over the way characters like han solo and especially luke skywalker portrayed and on one side you had people like uh ryan johnson and the filmmakers behind these movies saying uh yeah you're too attached to your heroes you're not you know you're not willing to look at the imperfections of heroes you know you have to be able to challenge your uh predisposed beliefs about them uh, and and it's okay that we're portraying you know people like Han Solo and Luke Skywalker in ways that are contrary to the way that you saw them in the original trilogy because those events were X amount of years ago then there's the other side of the argument which is the side I'm firmly on which is that no that's just BS you just don't you didn't want to make a movie with these characters as they're supposed to be you wanted to make movie X and then inject Luke Skywalker and Han Solo into your movie and in order to make that happen, instead of instead of changing your story to meet who the characters were, you changed the characters to meet who your story was. And now you're trying to like retcon it. You're trying to pull a fast one and say, ah, no, you know, it's totally okay that we portrayed uh, Luke Skywalker as a pessimistic, cynical burnout who doesn't even really have a real lightsaber fight with anyone. And if you don't can't buy that about that character, that's that's your problem because you're just not seeing your heroes for their flaws. It's like, nah, man, uh, we saw those flaws. We saw flaws in our heroes. That was the first trilogy, and. <laughs> And now you're uh, you're the one who just doesn't want to accept who these characters are. And so it's kind of like the same thing here where it's like they didn't want to really deal with Damien as he was presented at the end of the second film. Instead, they just wanted to have like a very stereotypical, suave, good-looking, multimillionaire uh, son of Satan. It's it's like it's it's very – it's like taking all those – really those basic, uh, uh, you know, touchstone uh, points of the character and, and not developing any further than that. We're like, all right, he's got to be rich, check. He's got to run a big company, check. He's got to be good-looking, check. He's got to have an evil smile, check. He's got to do evil things, check. <laughs> That's it. And nothing more than that. Um, and so I really laid a lot of the blame on the film with, you know, Birkin's script. Uh, you know, Neil's performance, I mean, Neil's in, in more recent, Interviews. I know he was on Mark Maron's podcast and said, you know, it wasn't really a great performance. 
he didn't consider it one of his better works. I don't think it's definitely, I think Sam Neill's a really great actor. I don't think this is one of his, I would agree this is not one of his finest moment. Um, but, uh, you know, a big chunk of that kind of lays on the script. It's kind of like people rip apart, go back into the Star Wars analogy. They rip apart the acting in the Star Wars prequel trilogy, you know, episodes one, two, and three. And there's definitely some bad acting in those, but, and I have to fault the actors to a degree, but also I've seen those actors give good performances and other things. So it kind of makes me think the problem is more with George Lucas's script. That's kind of the issue here. Now that's talking about the film, how it, we, you know, we said the film is lackluster and it lacked, that was, you know, we just were talking about how it lacked what made the first film so good. Well, what about the second film? Um, Damien Nolan 2. Well, first off, one of the things really, I really loved about Damien Nolan 2, like we said, is it had those really great horror punches. It had some really great horror moments. You know, the Meshach Taylor's elevator death and the amazingly filmed Luer's death scene uh, under the frozen lake. I mean, those were really... They were they were worked really well as horror moments, but they were also really uh, really incredibly well filmed. Um, they didn't work just on a visceral level, but they also worked on an artistic level. Uh, really good work all around on those. And you know, at the end of the day, the Omen movies are horror movies, uh, and not every horror movie ha- needs to has the same type of quote unquote horror moments. For example. The the uh, kind of classical horror moment I would expect out of a film like a Halloween or Friday the Thirteenth movie is gonna be different than the kind I would expect out of like uh, you know a, a movie like um, I Bury the Living or House on Haunted Hill or The Haunting. But each film has its own type of each horror movie has its own type of horror and and its own sense of horror, its own uh, a brand of horror, whether it be a slasher or supernatural or a haunted house or a psychological horror, and within its specific subgenre, it's going to deliver the horror goods. Um, the Omen 3, The Final Conflict, is a really toothless horror movie as a horror film, as a part of the horror genre. Um, and it's interesting because I watched some of the interview with Andrew Burke and the writer on the Blu-ray disc, and he even talked about how he, he admitted he struggled to come up with horror moments in this film. And he was even actually, uh, I think it was his son's kid, his son who was young at the time, his son's friends who's like offering to pay them like, I think it was like five pounds or whatever it was, to come up with you know, like horror moments in the movie, really good effective kill scenes or, or, or horror bits. Um, his favorite horror scene, he said, was... Now, a little bit of spoiler alert, but not really too much, is the first kill scene in the movie, which is, you know, in order for Damien to Thorne to become an ambassador to England, there's already an ambassador to England who has to be disposed of. And uh, it is it is probably the best, one of the one of the two best horror scenes in the film. It's definitely the best death scene. Um in terms of how how it's how it's uh constructed. But other than that, really, all the other kill scenes in the film are really, yeah, they're just toothless. They have no bite to them. You know, uh, a guy gets scared off a horse and falls over a bridge. Um, you know, someone gets stabbed in the back. Uh, there's a scene where a guy, uh, you know, Damien uses his evil telecon, you know, telepathic, whatever powers, connections he has with animals to have a, a, another guy uh, killed by a pack of dogs, but they're like fox hunting dogs. They're like hound dogs. So even though all these dogs are attacking him, it just, 
and you know there's like 20 dogs going after this guy, it still just looks ridiculous because they look, they're like little hound dogs. And so they don't, it's not like he's getting ripped apart by Rottweilers or something. So even in a moment like that where, oh, this should be something where Damien uses his mental powers to turn a pack of dogs in, on this guy and kill him, it just be kind of, just, I mean, not comical, but definitely uh, not very powerful <laughs> or visceral horror moment. Um, and, and, you know, there's, it's not just the uh, creativity of the horror scenes in terms of their content. It's also, uh, you know, the direction. So one of the most complicated death scenes to film in this movie uh, is a scene where, you know, again, a little bit of spoilers here, but it's kind of hard to avoid when you're talking about the movie. So you have all these, uh, this group of seven, magnificent seven monks going after Damien, and one of them tries, and each of them have a different one of the seven daggers to try to kill him with. Uh, which is kind of ignoring the mythology of the first film where Gregory Peck was told you have to stab, in order to kill Damien, you have to kill him with all seven daggers and they have to be like stabbed in a certain pattern. But whatever, hey, who cares? That's least of this film's problems. Chicago, Illinois. But um, no, uh, so this, this priest, monk, whatever, goes to this television station where Damien is being interviewed and he's up on this walkway up above with his dagger at hand, ready to attack at some moment. I don't know. I don't know why he's, what he's going to do. Cause he's like 30 feet up in the air. Unless he like, you know, throws it at him, uh knife thrower style. But anyways, he ends up falling, you know, getting caught up in like some cables on this gangway, falling over the edge, but his feet are uh, wrapped up in these cables. So he swings down uh, head first, like a bungee, cord almost like and he swings down through all this camera equipment and electronical equipment which explodes in the fire and sets him on fire so now he's swinging back and forth uh tied at the ankles upside down to this by these cables which are attached to a gangway up in the up in the air and he's on fire burning and so they talked about how they filmed the scene and they had the stuntman do the stunt where it was like he had to he literally had to jump off this gangway. Like it was like 20 or 30 feet there. It was like this really big, and I think he had to do, he had to jump backwards off it. It was really impressive in terms of like what he had to do to make the stunt work happen and to make this death happen. And so if you're telling me like, all right, we're going to have the stunt man jump off backwards from this huge distance way up in the air. We got a stunt man ready to do this. This is one of the film's key death scenes. How do we film this? Well, I think any first-year film school student would know how to film that. You know, you get multiple cameras, and you make sure to film the entire thing from beginning to end so that you can not only are you um, displaying the horror of it all in terms of what's actually happening to this character, but you're also, you know, the spectacle, the spectacle of the stunt. Instead, even though they actually went through the process of having this guy do this incredible stunt, there's find stuff about it online, how he was freaked out about doing it and everything. The way they actually end up showing the finished product to you is that, like, the camera's on the guy, he's getting tangled up in the cables on the gangway, and then he falls over, and then it, like, cuts to him. It's just a bunch of quick cuts. You never even see the fall, the actual stunt fall. It's like he starts to fall over, and it's like the real actor, and then it cuts to, like, the stunt man, but he's already he's already completed the descent, so now it's just him swinging laterally across this TV studio and catching on fire. So they, I don't know why they they might have all just had the stunt man, you know, jump off a ladder that was 10, 12 feet in the air for all they ended up showing on the movie, and that kind of thing happens quite a bit. And that was kind of that was, that's something I lay on the director 
who in this case was Graham Baker. This is Graham Baker, who, uh, you know, a British director. This is the first film he directed. And I do like, you know, some of his other work. I mean, he's probably best known as the director of Alienation, the 80s cult classic science fiction film with James Caan and Mandy Patinkin. But he did, after this, he did a, a horror movie called Impulse with Tim Matheson and Meg Tilly, uh, Hume Cronin's in it. Um, and that one I really that was a really good, it's a really good underappreciated uh, horror film, which I definitely recommend people checking out. King Lord put on Blu-ray. And that was the film that I had seen of his prior to this. So it was like, I was kind of going into this film like, well, you know, he did this right after he did impulse right after this. And he really delivered some good moments in that film. So, you know, maybe he was just still kind of working out the rest, the kinks of the horror genre on this one, but it was just really surprising how, he directed the scene in the exact opposite way that you should direct it. Like this is exactly not how you direct a big stunt piece slash horror moment is to just have a couple close up insert shots that, you know, uh, mean nothing. Um, and it, again, it's not just me pointing out this out in one scene. This happens in other parts of the film too. In fact, the entire, I think is really strange that the film starts out the way it does like it has the title sequence the montage uh, which is basically showing the daggers of Megiddo being found after the events of the end of the second film and them coming into the possession of Rosano Brazzi and his uh band of brothers and um and then it cuts to the scene uh the scenes that I talked to you about before where Sam Neill's watching this Thorn Industries commercial and he's having this whole discussion with his his right hand businessman slash antichrist man about uh you know how he's going to rise to power as the ambassador of England and all this stuff and it's not like a, a terminally long scene but it is you know a, a decent bit of dialogue um and again there's nothing special about it there's nothing like I mentioned there's nothing the film does nothing to really um uh, play up to the intrigue and curiosity we'd have about seeing Damien Thorne 20 years later. It's just all done very, very matter-of-factly, very blandly. And from that scene, it goes into the film's best death scene, the best film's best kill, kill scene, which we mentioned, uh, is the ambassador to England dying. And to me, I was like, why didn't they just start with that scene? Why After they finished, do whatever you got to do with your titles, your opening credit montage, and then have the whole scene with the ambassador being killed. And that's the first scene we see in the movie. We haven't even seen Damien yet, and we're seeing this guy die under really strange, violent, gruesome circumstances. And then from there, then we have the scene where we meet Damien and see what he's been up to. It would do so much more to get the film off to a jump. It would it would uh, do so much more to generate goodwill from your audience by you know, starting off with this great horror bite, this great horror moment. Uh, really fast to use here sees. And it would also serve as kind of like a proper introduction to Damien. It would do, it would serve kind of as like a shorthand for explaining uh, what Damien is like 20 years later. Well, he's he's still obviously someone who's very enmeshed in this world of gruesome, violent uh, deaths and ascension to power. So, I mean, even something like that, just something as basic as your narrative structure, you know, uh, how to organize your film. And I'm sure that was in the script that way. And then that's how Birkin wrote it. But still, that's on the director to kind of see that and be like, all right, we got to change this. We got to start off with a horror moment, you know. Uh, uh, you know, there's a reason Jaws starts off with the girl on the beach being eaten by the shark and then goes to the Roy Scheider scene 
the next morning, right? It doesn't start off with introducing us to Roy Scheider and his hanging out with his family and then go to a nighttime scene with the girl on the beach. You know, that's it's a horror film. Uh, and it doesn't just have to be the horror genre that does that, you know, mystery genres. Just really you know, storytelling in general, you know, you, you know, what is this film? What is the essence of this film? Um, is it, it's supposed to be out the, you know, it's a horror film that's supposed to be out the rise to power of the Antichrist. Well, then start out with like some guy meeting a horrible, gruesome death that allows, uh, you know, that paves the way for uh, our antagonist to continue to rise to power and it tells a lot about his character and what he's willing to do instead of starting off with a, you know, what's essentially an office scene. Um, but I guess that's actually kind of telling about the movie is because, you know, uh, that, that, it does tell us about what the movie is going to be. The fact that they did start off with the uh, the the screening room slash office room scene where uh, the anti you know Sam Neill's just talking about his future plans because that really is indicative of the rest of the film that it is very low wattage. It's it's very um, low energy. And another problems with the film too, like visually, it's not really you know aesthetically pleasing. It's not like a it doesn't. And that, again, that just speaks to the first two films, how incredibly well shot they were. Gilbert Taylor shot the first one, and Bill Butler shot the second one. I think especially this, uh, you know, you, well, you think about the first one, that great scene at the the cemetery where they, Gregory Peck and David Warner and cover the tombstones, how mysteriously and uh, uh, spookily that's shot. And then you think about the second film, that incredible rich Bill Butler cinematography. And this film just, it's very blasé. Um you know, the music of this film, Jerry Goldsmith comes back yet again. And I already talked about how like I wasn't a huge fan of Goldsmith's movie in the first one, but I liked it better than his movie, his music in the second film because it was kind of playing up more to what I feel are his strengths to bring in unusual musical aspects. And again, this film is kind of like back to the first one where it's it's not a bad musical score and it does have a couple nice uh, themes, but it's really underwhelming. It doesn't really ever stand out. Um, and then just kind of going in, this, this the whole idea of Damien, you know, having kind of like a love interest, which is where this, uh, you know, this character played by Lisa Harrow, this television reporter, kind of comes in. It's just completely unnecessary, and it feels very. Again, it just kind of goes back to like very cliched writing. Like, ah, he's older now; he's thirty something, so he must. We got to have a love interest. You know, we got to have some kind of romantic sexual dynamic going on here. And I just feel like, no, nah, we don't really need that. I don't think, you know, it's kind of, you know, I'm a big fan of the Bob Newhart show, the classic 70s comedy. And one of the things about that show that Newhart insisted on when he made that show, it's a hilarious comedy, great film, great series, one of my favorite comedies ever, great, uh, just incredible humor uh, and wonderful aesthetic too. But one of the things Newhart said about that show is, I don't want to have a kid in the show. I don't want my character to have a kid. Um, because it, it's just a dynamic he wasn't looking for in that. And he's right. If if they had you know once if they had introduced a kid into that show, then you suddenly have to have all these. Um, you have to deal with the existence of this child. You can't just it limits your your writing uh, potential for these the characters uh, of the adults because now everything they do there the existence of a kid has to be taken into account. Uh, if they travel to some place, you have to account for you know, who's going to watch the kid or if they uh, are going to go out in the night of town, what's going to happen to the kid. And you can't totally ignore the kid and never have stories about them because then it's like, why did you even bother having the kid in the show? And that's how I feel about a love interest in a Omen film for Damien. I'm like, we don't need this because now it just opens up this whole new set of things about like, why is he pursuing a relationship with her? Is he hoping that she'll be his 
you know, the queen to his Antichrist king? Is he hoping that she'll share power with him? Is it just like a fling? Is, you know, what does an Antichrist feel in terms of, you know, the son of Satan feel in terms of love? What kind of, uh, what does he feel in terms of those kind of emotions? It just opens up all these questions that I just don't care to have answered, um, that aren't important. They just distract away from the main thrust of the film, which in the closing of a trilogy should be, ideally whatever plot line this film is going to deal with should be taking him from where, Damien from wherever he is in adulthood to the culmination of, you know, his his becoming the Antichrist, with whatever that entails, whether he's actually facing off against Jesus on the desert or this film trying to track down a baby Jesus, whatever it is, it's the end of his story. That's what it should really entail. I don't need it to go off into a diversion about the home life of the Antichrist and the domestic relations of the Antichrist because it's just distracting. It's taking away time. And one of the things I thought this film was lacking that they could have had that would have made it, given it a stronger connective tissue to the previous two films and also solved the whole problem of the love interest is one of the problems I had this movie is there's no real link to the Thorne family. So in the first movie, Damien is raised by Gregory Peck as his son, who is, you know, Robert Thorne. And that's his son. And he knows the the child isn't biologically his, but the mother thinks it is. And even so, Gregory Peck feels, you know, he, he looks at it as his son. And the second film was one of those, you know, again, a great thing I liked about it is they, now he's being raised by his uncle and aunt. So there's like, who who believe that Gregory Peck's actions at the end of the first film where he tries to kill his child were the result of mental illness. So even though we know that Damien isn't a thorn by blood, we know that he's the son of the devil, he still has this relationship with the Thorn family. He has a relationship from his perspective where he looks at them as his father and aunt and uncle and all these things because he doesn't know any better. But he also has this relationship with them because he was raised by them. You know, he was raised by his father till he was five and then by his uncle till he was 12. And so there's this deep link to the family of Thorn that this character has because he is basically a Thorn. And also, you know, the really interesting uh, things they bring into it in the second film, like, all right, if, if a man dies trying to kill his child and now you're raising that child and even if, even if you're, your brother was going through some kind of mental health crisis. The existence of this child is still the cause of his death, right? The, if you're William, so if you're William Holden in the second movie, you're, you're Damien's uncle. You're raising this, your nephew, knowing that your brother died trying to kill this kid. So even if your brother like had like some mental breakdown, it's still the existence of this kid that led to him, him trying to kill the baby and then led to him being killed by the cops. I mean, there's just so many layers of like love slash hate there that could happen. Like you, you, you love this, this boy because he's your nephew. You love him because he's a child, but also you could have resentment towards him for what happened to your brother. Now, Wade Bolton's character doesn't have that in that movie. He does love Damien and raises him as son, but you see that dynamics with other characters. Like for example, the Sylvia Sidney character in the second movie, the great aunt who has a lot of, who senses a lot of darkness about Damien and doesn't want him to be involved with the family. And I would have really loved to see in the third movie them continue that. Even if it was just, you know, I don't need them to go like in some ridiculous uh, fashion with it where, you know, Damien ends up having a half-brother from a, a Lee Remick's prior marriage or uh, another cousin. You know, it doesn't need to be like, uh, 
you know, Halloween too, where Jamie Lee Curtis finds out that Michael Myers is also her brother. You know, it doesn't need to be something ridiculous or crazy or contrived. It could be something as simple as having a character in the film uh, who's like another, kind of like Sylvia said in the second film, like another great aunt or a great uncle, some older member of the Thorne family who's still connected to the business, who's still connected uh, emotionally to the family's history. And that character would give a, a strong connection between the uh, third film and the events of the prior two films. It would give a connection to the Thorne family and to Gregory Peck and William Holden's character. And in injecting such a character into the final conflict, they could just get rid of this this news journalist altogether. Yes, you wouldn't have a romantic element for the Antichrist, but we don't need that. And instead, this all the things that functionally this uh, Lisa Harrow's character of this news reporter uh, does in the third film, those those functions could be carried out by having just another member of the Thorn family in this film. And it would also kind of bring it full circle. Um, you know, if if this member of the Thorn family, this, uh, you know, whoever it would be, did whatever Lisa Harrow does in this film without giving spoilers away, it would kind of bring a nice closure to the events of the movie. Um, but they didn't have me write the movie. So, hey, whatever. Now, one thing I will give Birkin some, you know, you have to give him some slack on, is like the whole, somewhat, is the whole like Rosano Brazzi segment. So like when they originally wrote this film, there was no Rosani Brazzi in the Magnificent Seven of Monks uh, going all over the place with the daggers trying to cam- kill Sam Neill. Apparently that was not part of the original draft. And the way Damien was portrayed in the original draft the uh, execs at Fox were basically like, uh, uh, he's the Antichrist, but he kind of comes across like the good guy, like the protagonist. And, and Birkin countered, well, it's kind of like Richard III, Shakespeare's Richard III, where like he, he, Richard III is your protagonist, but he's also an evil person. Well, Fox wasn't buying the Shakespearean answer. So they uh, take another drink of water here. Uh, they, um, they said, no, come back with something else. So that's when he created the whole subplot about Rosano Brazzi and the monks to try to have more of a classic good-evil battle going on. All that stuff with the monks, all the stuff with the observatory, <laughs> tracking a second star of Bethlehem, all that stuff is ridiculous and comic booky, and should not be in the film. I love Rosano Brazzi. I love it when he shows up in a film that is quote-unquote acclaimed, like Three Coins at the Fountain or whatever, you know, this film he was making back in the 50s in Hollywood. I love it when he shows up in an episode of some 70s TV show. I love it when Rosano Brazzi shows up in The Christmas That Almost Wasn't, which he also directed. Landmark performance. I love that movie. Um, I love Rosano Brazzi. And so him being in this film is a treat, but it's just stupid. It's just like, it doesn't even, again, it just doesn't even belong in this movie. The whole idea of like, Again, the, the the first two Omen movies were grounded in the real world. You knew as an audience member that Damien was the Antichrist. But the events were portrayed in such a realistic and grounded fashion that it could be believable that other people would not see him as the Antichrist, that they would see all the evil things and violent things happening around them in the first two films as coincidence or as explainable. Um and that the paranoia of people like Gregory Peck in the first film and William Holden in the second film or other characters was unfounded. The third film, though, I mean, it just seems like, like the closest thing I think of is a comic book. It just seems like something out of a comic book where you have seven monks, each with a different dagger, coming after Damien to kill him. 
and they're in league with an observatory uh, that's tracking a new star. I mean, it just doesn't, it's like, what is this? What it, it's again, the Star Wars analogy. It's like when in the Star Wars prequels, they were like, decided to explain away the force as being uh, the result of some microscopic organism that lives inside you. It's like, we don't need that. The thing we loved about the original Star Wars trilogy is the the purity of its pathology. It, the, it described the forces as an essence that uh, existed, coexisted with us and that we can tap into. And, you know, it, it had kind of a hippy-dippy aspect to it. Sure, if you want to look at it that way. But it, it made perfect sense. It made perfect sense on a, a very um, instinctive level. And then when George Lucas comes along 20 years later, I was like, nah, I got to... It's actually like this alien life form that's living inside you. It's like uh, this microscopic level. It has a name. Uh, there's a way you can count how much of it is in you. And if there's, you know, it's like we don't need to all explain it. We get it. We knew what it was in the first movie without you having to, you know, uh, uh, do a Venn diagram of it. You know, less is more. And so that's the same thing with the third movie in the Omen. We're like, ah, oh, we're going to. We're going to have Christ come back. It's the third Omen movie. We know how this ends. The whole story of the Antichrist is supposed to end with him having a conflict with Christ. So let's have Christ come back as a baby. And um, then we'll inject all the stuff into it, like science fiction, the stuff like where there's another star of Bethlehem, uh, which, of course, it's modern day. So now astronomers can track the star and they can pinpoint its coordinates. So we'll have all these exciting scenes in the observatory. And and then we'll have them in touch at the observatory with a league of priests. Um, and you're just like watching, like, wait, what? What film am I watching again? Because this doesn't like any, this is like, you know, something I like a challenge of the super friends. Um, that's what this seems like. It seems like a plot out of like, um, you know, Hannah Barbera Saturday morning cartoon. It doesn't have, it doesn't, it doesn't in any way, shape or form, um, have the real world quality to it, which is what was such a strength of the first two movies. Also the whole idea of Jesus coming back, his second coming is him coming back as an infant. I, I think that that, I mean, it's an interesting idea and the whole plot concept of the film that there's this whole, you know, the whole idea of the film is that Damon doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't know which child is Jesus, but he has an idea of when he would have been born. So he basically is trying to get all his followers to kill any child born between such and such a time and such and such a place, which is a callback to the original nativity story. Uh, you know, when Jesus was born, in the, the story of his, in the Bible, of uh, the Gospels, um, you know, Herod, the king of Israel, likewise did not know who he was, but he had an idea of when and where he was born. So he had instructed his soldiers to kill um, all, the, all the infants from that time period. The problem is that if we're ending up this, wrapping up this story of the omen, we're doing him, you know, the Antichrist is a baby, the Antichrist uh, coming into adolescence, and the Antichrist is an adult. And this is the final film. And so we know there's got to be some kind of climactic showdown between good and evil at the end. And we know good is the Antichrist, I mean, evil is the Antichrist, and good is Jesus coming back. Then why would you have him come back as a baby? It's not like he's going to have, like, pull some 2001 Space Odyssey and go against, like, a giant star baby at the end. And... So then what's your other option? You're going to wait, you know, we have to wait to 
30 more years for this child to grow up into adult so we can then take on a 60-year-old Damien? Why would you have him come back, basically? Why would you write a script in which the long-awaited savior, pun intended, the long-awaited protagonist, the long-awaited hero of the story, Jesus, why would you write a story in which we, you know that the, uh, the expectation is that he's going to come back to face off against the Antichrist? Why would you develop your story in such a way that he comes back as an infant so he can't possibly be the one to face off against Damien? It's it's like you're, it's just, again, it's just setting your story up for failure. It's, it's just ridiculous. It's like, why would you do that? Yeah, it's an interesting idea. Jesus is the second coming is as a baby again. Yeah, it's interesting. You parallel the nativity story and, and playing off that. Those, those are interesting ideas. I don't deny that. But you can't do it for this film, the Omen film. If you were going to do that, you would have had to lay the groundwork for that uh, in the in the second movie, so that Jesus is show that they're the same age, basically they come of age at the same. They're both thirty something. I don't necessarily have an answer because I know everyone was wondering what my solution to the Omen film uh, trilogy was. Um, I don't have an answer to how you would end an Omen trilogy because, like I said, the the first two part of the reason the first two films work so much is the degree to which they're grounded in reality. Um, you know, the closest we get to supernatural in the first two films is kind of like you know an evil look from the rottweiler to the danny before she kills herself in the first movie or damien you know causing a cerebral aneurysm in his cousin but if we are going to actually go into full-blown armageddon territory where we're gonna you know we if we're gonna basically close off this cinematic trilogy by closing it off with the expected events of Damien facing off against Jesus at the Battle of Armageddon, it would be really tough to do that and still maintain any sense of reality or grounding. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's definitely a, a task that was beyond these people who made the final conflict. And off the top of my head, I just don't know how you do that. I mean, uh, you know, the last 20 minutes of the final conflict they definitely weren't up to <laughs> they weren't up to the the uh up to the job requirements of, of bringing this trilogy to an end uh even if they had gotten everything else in the right in the film that, those last 20 minutes i mean it's it's also you know again i don't want to get into spoiler territory but i'll just say like the climax of this film where everything comes to a conclusion for this what is it now? Five years of Omen films spanning uh, like a 37 year period. It is so low. It is the Matrix revolutions of the Omen trilogy. Like, I'm not a huge Matrix fan, but I, res I respect the importance of the first Matrix film and the part it played in cinema history. I don't think it's a bad film by any chance, just not necessarily my thing. I think the second Matrix film is like, you know, yeah, it's fine. You know, it's more of what it is. And But the third film, even as someone who isn't a Matrix fan, like, it is the biggest pile of crap ever. Um, and the biggest, you know, one of the biggest letdowns for culminating a trilogy. And the final conflict, especially in, in the way it brings about the the wrapping up events at the end, it is just so pedestrian and disappointing. I want to say disappointing because by that time you've sat through like 80 minutes of the film. So you weren't really expecting much. I mean, it has a little bit of like craziness, you know, uh, to the ending of the film. Like, wow, 
you know, this is kind of whacked out, but that that sense of wackiness is uh, overcome by like just the sheer, um, the sheer again, I just low wattage nature of it, the lacklusterness of it. I'm going back to that word because my mind is not a thesaurus. Um, yeah, it's again. I don't know how you would end up wrap up the story of Damien. I don't have the answer to that. How you'd wrap up the story of of him finally squaring off against the powers of good and do it in a way that retains that realistic sense that was so well built up in the first two movies. And perhaps the best answer to that is you just don't do it. You just say, "All right, Damien Owen two, we're good. The end. We don't make a third one." Um, I think there's there has to be a way to do it, but again, these guys. They, they just didn't do it. And what's weird too is like, they definitely spent money on this film. This is not like, it's weird. It comes across like a film that where they would have just like, all right, we're doing the third one. We just got a, yeah, we got like some contractual obligation that we have to make this movie and before this date, and we're just gonna spend a little money on it. That's the way this film comes across. It comes like one across like one of those films, like one of the Hellraiser sequels. We're like, we're gonna lose the rights if we don't just make a Hellraiser movie. <laughs> uh, Clive Barker's uh, on the phone. No, they definitely spent money on this movie, and they had Jerry Goldsmith scoring it. You know, Richard Donner came back as a producer. I don't know how hands on he was. It's just an executive producer credit. I heard rumors that he may have been considered to direct it. I don't know how true that is. Um, but they definitely spent some money on it. I mean, it's you know big crowd extra scenes they got helicopters and you know special effects and all kinds of stuff happening and the budget from what i've read is it was about five to six million so a little less than the second film the second film's budget had like 6.8 and it was like a three-year difference so it's probably means that the budget on this was even a little a little less than that but you know this film doesn't have the cast that the second one has so i mean a lot of money probably went in the second film just to that cast but so they definitely have money on this, but it just doesn't come across like it. It comes across like it's just kind of like a phoned-in sequel. Even the cast, though, is kind of low wattage. I mean, I like, don't get me wrong. Like I said, uh, I, I like Sam Neill as an actor. I like, I love Rosetta Brazzi. I love Don Gordon. But, you know, when you're making the first film in the franchise and your star is Gregory Peck, one of the most legendary screen actors ever, still highly regarded at that point in his career, Academy Award winner, and his leading lady is Lee Remick, an Academy Award nominee. And then you make the second film, and you have William Holden, Oscar winner, coming right off his, his network. And you have Lee Grant, who's just won an Oscar for Shampoo. And you have Sylvia Sidney in her comeback face. And Lou Ayers, highly respected. And then all those great characters. And then you get to your third film. And okay, I'll give him a pass for Sam Neill, because that's the whole kind of thing where you're like, uh, he's the up-and-coming actor who, the new, the shining new star, we're going to try to get him in this film. And I guess part of the reason that Sam Neill got this role is uh, James Mason, the legendary British actor, really came to bat for him and pushed for him to, to be cast in this part. And uh, I guess I can kind of give you a second pass for Lisa Harrow being your female lead. Not a lot of, not really any star power there, but again, yeah, you're trying to go for the whole... Yeah, I mean, when Star Wars came out, no one knew who Mark Hamill or Carrie Fisher or Harrison Ford was for all intents and purposes. I mean, Mark Hamill was the oldest son from Eight is Enough for like two episodes, and Carrie Fisher was Debbie Reynolds' daughter, and Harrison Ford was been around for 10 years in supporting parts. So I'm okay with the, you know doing Sam Neill and Lisa Harrow for the leads on that regards. But the rest of your cat, like Rosano Brasi, this was way past Rosano Brasi Prime. 
Don Gordon, great character actor, but he's fourth build. I mean, there's nothing in this film in terms of the, even remotely approaching a tenth of the star power that was brought into the first two films, which to me speaks to like how seriously they were taking it as producers. Like one of the big um, main people behind the Owen trilogy was producer Harv Bernhard, and I just feel like wait, was he just? Did he? It's like, did you not pay attention to what made the first two films so good, Harv? Because you were really hands on with the third film, and uh, he's even got a little bit part in it. And didn't you see how important it was that things be grounded in reality? Didn't you see how important it was to have like these really big name veteran actors? It just it comes across very much like why they bother. I will say one thing about. Oh well, actually, before I say that. <laughs> Here's another example of it. In the opening credits, I think it's in the opening credits, you know, they're always they're saying all the cast members. And then uh, the president, the U.S. president in the film, as a character, is played by Mason Adams, who gets his, I'm pretty sure he gets his own title card in the opening um, credits. And, like, and Mason Adams as the president. So Mason Adams was an actor. He was really known basically for um, Lou Grant, the, the newsroom drama spinoff of the Mary Tyler Moore show. And I believe he had several Emmy nominations for that. But that was like his biggest role ever, was as one of the supporting members of an ensemble TV show. And he gets his own title card at Mason Adams as the president. That's a role that like, well, I mean, you could have called Robert Vaughn. You know, you could have come up with someone of that caliber, like someone who is like at least a slightly past his prime leading man. Like... Anthony Perkins wasn't doing, was busy that weekend, I guess. I mean, I don't know. Like, just, again, it just, the fact that you're like, ah, oh, we got to have this, the American president's going to be a character in this film. He's going to be so important that he's going to get his own title card at the end of the beginning uh, credits. I mean, that's a role, that's the kind of thing where you're like, oh, really? Okay, well, let's get someone for that. Like Henry Fonda, he just did like a day on tentacles and a day on Meteor. Maybe we can get him for a day on this film. And it's like, now nah, we'll get Mason Adams from Luke Grant. Like, you know, no disrespect to Mason Adams, but it's like, you know, look at the fourth guy from Left from an Ensemble. It would be like getting like, I don't know. What's another ensemble show? Well, this is, I don't know. It's just feel like, yeah, I'm speechless. I'm speechless. It's just, what, what were they doing with this movie? What were they doing with this movie? I ask you. The best horror scene in this film, the best kill scene was the opening one, as I mentioned. But actually, the best horror film, there is one really good horror moment in this film I will say and had almost as not quite but as almost as good a visceral response for me as the best scenes in the first two but I I, I don't want to give it away but just let's just say it has to do with a uh, a woman's vision uh, nightmarish vision of her baby uh, uh, as as the as the killing of babies is being carried out in this film by Damien and his acolytes uh, a woman is has a vision of her baby as something other than what it is. And it came out of nowhere within the film. I wasn't expecting it. Uh, but it also worked because it made sense. And it was really effectively done. It was really brief. Um, but that was, that was like the best moment of the whole film, is that. And last, but not least, because I know I'm really bringing it down hard on this film. This is supposed to be the culmination of the Omen trilogy. We all know that the culmination, of, as we've talked about, of the story of Revelation, of the story of the Antichrist, of the story of the end times, is that the world has gone to crap, 
And out of the uh, midst of this turmoil has risen the Antichrist, who has united the world under one rule, and how he is going to head on take on the powers of good as represented by the return of Jesus. That is the end time story in a nutshell. This film, it kind of like tries to telegraph to you at the beginning, like, oh, the world sucks. There's poor, hungry people out in the world. Like, that's kind of like what it's trying to do in a way with the opening scene with Damien where he's watching this newsreel and it's it's basically promotional for the uh, what all the all the great work that uh, Thorn Industries does. And what's really happening is that Thorn Industries is actually basically kind of creating some geopolitical problems and then sending in their company to act as good Samaritans uh, so that they can kind of control the situation and look like saviors to everyone. Um, but that aspect of the plot, which should be important, right? It should be important to kind of set up a world in despair because if this is the final chapter of the Omen story, we have to believe that, you know, that the Antichrist has had, uh, you know, has had the proper uh, arena in which to come to power. You know, the world is supposed to be in chaos when he rises to power. The world is supposed to be in turmoil, and, and he is supposed to basically, like, it's like Hitler in Germany, right, after World War One, Hitler came to power because Germany was devastated after World War One. Not only had they lost the war, they had, uh, you know, all these, uh, you know, rules and sanctions put upon them by uh, the victorious countries that basically, like, humiliated them and, and broke them. And Hitler was able to step in and basically inspire everyone, unfortunately, um, through by you know, giving the sense of national unity and pride and rose them back to power. And that's kind of like what the Antichrist is supposed to be. He's supposed to be the, you know, it's the way he's presented almost biblically, but it's also the kind of way he's been you know, set up even within the mythology of the Omen films. But when we watch, start off the final conflict, which, you know, it's a movie shot in 1981, although for some reason they're setting it in 1978, whatever, same diff. Um, the world looks pretty fine. It looks like pretty much business as usual. And this was something that someone pointed out to in one of the reviews I read. I can't remember who it was. I read through some reviews, but they also pointed out too that like for the end times, things don't look that horrible. For what's supposed to be like the pre-apocalypse where mankind's falling apart and, and uh, you know, turning in on themselves. Um, everything looks pretty pretty low stakes. Everything looks pretty business as normal. And that was something that really did uh, impress itself on me as I watched the film because you're, the film's constantly hammering on you uh, how evil Damien is and what could happen if he was to take over the world and the, uh, the high stakes he's faced with having to uh, stop you know the second coming of Christ before it stops him because you know, it's going to halt his rise to power and halt his avenging of the devil and halt his plans for world domination. And they're doing the film puts a lot of energy into telling you this through the, the dialogue of Damien. But what you're seeing around Damien, going on in the world world surrounding him throughout the film, is just like everyday life. Like, it doesn't look like the world's in that much of a turmoil that it would be turning to someone like Damien to be a savior. Like, they're having him go through the right motions to go on that path. He's head of a huge company, which controls a lot of food industries, which is, you know, 
doing a lot to uh, cause problems in parts of the world that it can then solve. He's getting this important position in the government as ambassador to England. But it's still a far cry. He's still like leagues away from um, you know, being in a position where he is the head of a one world government that we, that he is the savior of a mankind, the Hitler of this piece. Um, there's nothing at all about the depiction of world events in this film that would make you think you're anywhere close to an Armageddon like time period. And that's kind of important in a film that's closing up the trilogy, in a film where Armageddon should ideally be the, the climax of the piece. Um, presenting a world that doesn't look like it's anything you know, near such desperation. That's that's a problem. That That's a narrative issue. And I had a problem with that too. I had a problem with a lot of things in this movie. Is it a bad movie? I enjoyed watching it. I did. Um, but it's definitely... It's definitely a really weak way to, to, to sign things off on this franchise. I mean, they did do a fourth movie, obviously, for cable TV in the 90s. Um, and I will get around to watching that at some point. Um, but the first two, it, it's such a come down from the first two. It really is. Big time. Big time. But I think you should watch for yourself. Uh, what is it LeVar Burton said in Reading Rainbow? But you don't have to take my word for it. I think that's what it was, right? Yeah. All right. Anyways, enough. That is The Final Conflict from 1981. The third entry, the Theatrical Omen Trilogy. Thank you very much for tuning into this episode of Carpet City Cinema. Please do what you can to show us the love. Subscribe to us and give us great reviews on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And spread the news. Spread the good word. And we will be in touch with you next week to talk about another movie, probably not from the Omen franchise. All right, take care and have a good week. <laughs>